You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us safely to this day. Thank you for bringing us to this church where we may hear your word, um, inwardly digest your word, and go forth in your word to love and serve you throughout our days. Please, Lord, may these words be your words, and may we all be edified and strengthened in our faith. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, okay, first things first, I'm sure several of you are very disappointed to see that Fran Cade is not here this morning. This is a three-week series that Fran and I are, in fact, doing together, but she is celebrating her daughter Frances's birthday. They went to the family farm for the weekend, and um, I said, oh, that's fine, you go, I, I'll handle it because I knew that that would make her feel completely guilty and I would get some really good payback. But um, in truth, what I offer today really has been um, put together in great collaboration with Fran. We have spent a lot of time on this together and um, we, we, so this, is, this comes from Fran even if she's not here. Um, especially if you disagree with some things. That, that's Fran's part. Um, so, this morning and for the following two Sundays, we are going to be reflecting on the temptations of Jesus by Satan in the wilderness 40 days immediately following his baptism by John the Baptist. And we chose this in part because we are now, as a church, observing Lent and Jesus' time in the wilderness, a time of fasting and resisting temptation, is remembered in these days of Lent. Hey Lynn, so glad to see you. Excuse me. You haven't missed much at all. Um, And I also want to suggest that Fran and I both think the more accurate understanding of what happened to Jesus in the wilderness is that it was a time of testing. Temptations of all persuasions are occasions when God tests our faithfulness to Him. And today, as we look at other stories in the Scripture of people in the wilderness, we will see that these experiences are indeed a time of testing. The account of Jesus' wilderness experience, uh, it's recorded in all three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, And Mark is, of course, the briefest. He just tells us that immediately, his favorite word, immediately the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness, and he was there for 40 days being tempted by Satan. And interestingly, Mark is the only one who tells us that Jesus was with the wild animals um, and the angels ministered to him. So I'm going to read Matthew's account. It's probably, um, it's very similar to Luke, except the ordering of the three temptations is a little different. But this will kind of give us a picture um, of what happened to Jesus during that time in the wilderness. And this is Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. 
Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So we're going to spend a lot of time unpacking all of this. But today, what I want us to do, what Fran and I thought we would do first, is we're going to look at the role of the wilderness in the lives of the peop uh, people of God, particularly the, the stories in the Old Testament where folks are find themselves in the wilderness and things happen to them. Um, so we're going to consider things like what is the wilderness? Um, what is it as a place, as an existential reality, as a spiritual reality? What occurs in the wilderness throughout the scripture? What happens in our individual times of wilderness? Um, Fran and I see the wilderness for all its dangers and deprivations. It's actually a place of opportunity that God puts in our lives for our refinement and understanding of who God is and who we are. Rather than a place of punishment, the wilderness is a place for transformation. A place where we receive our true identity, we remember our authority in Christ, and um, we come to a greater realization of our purpose. The dictionary, just get it out there, the dictionary's definition of wilderness is as a wild and uncultivated region, as of a forest or desert uninhabited or inhabited only by wild animals, a tract of wasteland. So in the wilderness accounts found in scripture, the locale is usually the desert or uninhabited mountainous regions. And these were hostile places for human preservation. That's just a given. The de desert was dangerously hot during the day and likewise dangerously cold at night. 
the desert lacked vegetation. And while it isn't as simple as the desert had no water, there was only unreliable sources of water, almost worse. Wells dug in the desert were never deep enough, and the rainfall was erratic and never sufficient. So in short, the wilderness is a place where human beings cannot take care of their own survival. They cannot live in the wilderness without outside provisions from a source outside of their own resources. Even in today's world, with like those um, reality TV shows, Survivor, is that what it's, yeah. Um, we see all sorts of man-made tools and equipment, you know, fighting back at the wilderness, trying to make it survivable, livable. But you take that fancy stuff away, and you are not going to survive in the wilderness. You, the only way you will survive is if you have an outside intervention, a rescue. So our own personal existential experiences of wilderness um, throughout our lives are much like the physical experience of being in a desert or a desolate, inhospitable place. We cannot find our way. We cannot help ourselves. Our orientation to reality changes profoundly. We have no choice but to take it one day at a time. In fact, really, one breath at a time. So let us consider a very brief survey of some of the major wilderness stories in the Old Testament leading right back to John the Baptist, the chosen one who went into the wilderness and baptized many people in that wilderness as he was preparing the way for Jesus Christ. And I'm going to start with Noah, all the way back in Genesis 16, um, and his story kind of begins with the first verse, with this. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heaven were open. And the rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. And I'm starting with this story because, well, there's the obvious significance of the forty days and forty nights and Jesus' forty days and nights in his wilderness. But it's also because we, we are told that Noah builds this ark only because God tells him to. It makes absolutely no sense to build such a boat, and yet Noah does. So this tells us that Noah is a faithful man, and the scripture says so. It's because he is this faithful man that God is going to spare him from the total destruction he's about to unleash. So it's interesting to note that God is sending a faithful man into the wilderness. This is not punishment. So um, uh, these days in the ark, as the world is literally being destroyed, um, they were days of total chaos and uninhabitable land, to say the least. There was no land. It was immersed. Um, and then there was an abundance of water, but it was not potable. It was, in fact, the enemy. The water was. 
and all that existed was a boat, a nuclear family, some mortal animals, and God. Each and every day easily could have been their last. What we know about this recording of Noah and his family is that Noah was faithful and God saved them. It makes sense then that the first thing Noah and his family did when they finally left the ark after a year was to build an altar and offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving to God. Um, the next one I'd like for, story I'd like for us to look at is the two wilderness experiences that Hagar had. And I know you remember, Hagar was Sarah's Egyptian servant who Sarah told her husband Abraham, actually he was Abram at this time, to impregnate Hagar um, because it seemed hopeless that, they, that Sarah and Abraham would ever have a child. And Sarah's plan worked and Hagar did become pregnant. And this made Hagar, we are told, haughty. She felt like she had one-upped her mistress. Um, and this caused Sarah to look on Hagar with contempt. And Sarah dealt harshly with her to the point that pregnant Hagar fled. She just fled. And then we are told that the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. Surely a spring provided by the Lord. And indeed, the angel of the Lord confronts her and asks her questions he knows the answer to. That's not unusual. He asks, where have you come from and where are you going? Hagar is truthful in her answers, which I think is another quality of the wilderness. People tend to be honest in the wilderness. Um, the angel tells Hagar, no, here is what you are going to do. You are going to submit and you're going to return to Sarah and her um, and then Hagar's unborn son is given a blessing by this angel of the Lord. Hagar realizes, um, it's, it's a powerful moment for her, she realizes that she has had an encounter with the Lord and she says, you are a God of seeing. Truly here have I seen him who looks after me. So here we have this young Egyptian woman who does not know Yahweh having this encounter and suddenly she knows who he is. He is the God that sees her and hears her. And so Hagar um, goes back and she is submissive. Ishmael is born. And then we fast forward about 16 years. Um, she is the mother of Abraham's firstborn, Ishmael. Um, and Ishmael is caught by Sarah laughing at Isaac, Isaac the promised son that finally arrived for Abraham and Sarah and for whatever reason Ishmael smirks at Isaac and this makes Sarah furious. Sarah wants them banished and even though Abraham does not, I mean after all it is his son too 
God intervenes and God tells Abraham to do what Sarah wants, to send Hagar out. So we're told in Genesis 21 verse 14, So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. Now notice that Abraham provides water and bread and sends her on her way. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. The water and bread Abraham provided, of course, ran out. Um, Hagar by this time is completely defeated and she puts her son under a bush so that she may not actually witness his certain death. She is certain of their death. But again, she hears the voice of the Lord and her eyes were opened um, and there before her is a well. Once again, miraculous provision from the Lord in the wilderness. And this well actually sustains Ishmael and Hagar and Ishmael grows up in the wilderness which is kind of interesting that he grows up there that's where he flourishes he becomes really good with the bow and arrow and um, Ishmael's blessing is come to, it comes true that he becomes the father of many many people he becomes the father of a nation and so now what about our friend Jacob and his experiences in the wilderness. Um, we all remember the conniving hijinks of Jacob and his mother Rebecca um, that managed to steal the firstborn's blessing from his brother Esau. So by a fit of great deception in cahoots with his mother, um, Jacob gets what is rightfully Esau's. And despite the fact that it's stolen, the blessing was binding, and Esau, in his anger, was planning to kill Jacob as soon as Isaac died. Rebekah gets wind of this, and she decides that Jacob must travel 550 miles to her brother Laban's home to keep him safe, to keep Jacob safe. Isaac instructs Jacob to take his wife from among Laban's family. So off Jacob goes. And on his journey, as we all know, he stops at a certain place to spend the night. And this is what we're told in Genesis 28, verse 11. Taking one of the stones of the place, so he is clearly in the wilderness using a stone for a pillow, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the east and the west and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. 
for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. So here we have this amazing dream where God descends down to Jacob and pronounces this incredible blessing and promise to Jacob. It is in the wilderness that God affirms that he will never leave Jacob. He will keep him wherever he goes. And, and this is an interesting footnote. Um, many, many years later, when Jesus is calling his disciple Nathaniel, he tells Nathaniel, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So Jacob's dream is also foreshadowing the, everla the everlasting ladder of God, who is Jesus Christ. So there is so much richness, and it happened in the wilderness. God makes it clear who he is, who he is and what it is that he is going to do for Jacob and his descendants. Um, and then again, recalling Jacob's very familiar story. Now you could spend a year just on Jacob. Um, after years living with Laban and marrying two of his daughters, we know all about that, Jacob grows wealthy. He has many children. All of this through God's provision. He, it's almost like he can't help it. His flocks flourish when Laban's do not. He, he continues to acquire more of Laban's flock, even though he's not really trying to. Um, and so Jacob loses Laban's favor, and he decides it's time to return to his home so that he might possess the land promised to him by his father Isaac. Um, but of course there is one major hurdle, the presumed anger of his brother Esau. So on their journey back to Canaan, and I am abbreviating a lot, Jacob sends away all his family and his servants, sending them ahead with many gifts to present to Esau as a means of appeasing him. And then Jacob spends a solitary night in the wilderness. And we all know this story very, very well too. We read in Genesis 32:24, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob wrestles with God alone in the wilderness, and a lot happens to him. He prevails. He is given a permanent limp. He's given a new name, and he's given a blessing. Now, these are the kinds of things that happen in the wilderness, and they happen 
uh, metaphorically and they happen literally. This is, this is the kind of things that happen. Um, we are changed, renamed, and blessed. The most obvious and, of course, uh, profound foreshadowing in the Old Testament of Jesus' time in the wilderness is, of course, the Exodus, the freeing of the Israelites from Egypt by God's intervention and their wanderings in the wilderness for 40 years. Our hero, Moses, has his first wilderness encounter with God way in the beginning when he is tending his father-in-law's flock. And you remember, Moses is a self-exiled man hiding out because he killed an Egyptian. Moses leads his flock to Horeb, the mountain of God, and also known as Mount Sinai, which is going to, of course, be a very pivotal important place in Moses's life. It is in this moment that Moses sees the burning bush, we all know that, and God establishes who he is. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God establishes where he is. He tells Jacob, here, I mean Moses, here I am. And God establishes what he has heard. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. That's a very profound thing for Moses to hear. God hears and he knows their sufferings and he is intervening. So God makes clear what he is doing. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land flowing with milk and honey. And God establishes what it is that Moses is being called to do. Um, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And of course we know that there's protesting and then there's plagues and, and it's a long and amazing drama with a lot of suffering included in it. It doesn't happen overnight. Um, but all of it happens through God's intervention. And as we know, once they do flee Egypt, Pharaoh lets them go. The Israelites are going to spend the next 40 years wandering in the desert. And it's not because it's a 40-year trip from Egypt to the Promised Land. It's for other reasons. Um, it's, in fact, it's primarily the reason is because the people will not trust in the Lord. They are stiff-necked and they don't get it. Um, so before... Before they even cross the Red Sea, Moses is pleading with them as they grumble, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Now isn't that amazing? All you got to do is be quiet and let the Lord lead. And that is also something that I think happens in the wilderness. We, we get to a place where we can be quiet 
and and there's much more room for God to be with us and to be in communication with us and so of course we know for years um, the Israelites persist in their lack of faith even when God does things like provide a log to make bitter water sweet and drinkable um, that that doesn't that amazement doesn't last long even when God rains bread down from heaven each day the perfect portion for each day God tells Moses behold I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them not tempt them test them whether they will walk in my law or not and as we know God also provides quail he defeats their enemies he provides water from a rock and then he goes on to provide the Ten Commandments the Covenant instructions for building the Ark of the Covenant the tabernacle the priesthood and he sets out the work and the purpose for each of the twelve tribes God is so ever-present in their daily lives but in return what did the Israelites do well exhibit a they make a golden calf um, God, so God is using these 40 years to weed out those Israelites who are a stiff-necked people over and over and it will be those who enter the promised land of the next generation those who have been tested by God and found that their faith is secure that doesn't mean that they are now blameless and they will forever keep the law but they're they are steadfast in their understanding that they are God's and God will provide and take care take care of them they are ready to receive the blessing of the promised land and that is sometimes what happens to us in our wildernesses it may even take a long time but what happens is we are changed and it's in that change that we are able to come back from the wilderness if you will and we're going to talk about that a lot more in the weeks to come okay and then one last story I would like for us to recall and that is Elijah and his wilderness time I just love this story and we are now in first Kings like chapter 19 Elijah has just been incredibly and spectacularly successful in his demonstration of God's singular deity over the gods of Baal it was Yahweh the God of the Israelites who ignited a fire despite jars of water first drenching the wood three times the fire is still ignited and it's quite the spectacle and the priests of Baal they cannot do likewise so in a very public dramatic way Elijah has proven the sovereignty of his God and but what that ends up doing despite his success is it, it gets him in hot water and Jezebel wants him to be put to death she is after his head so we are told that Elijah 
went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And that too is a quality that we can sometimes find in the wilderness. Utter despair. A, a, a desire to live no more. Um, but Elijah, as we know, did not die. He was first attended to by an angel who fed him a cake and a jug of water and told him to go rest and when he woke back up the same thing was repeated and this nourishment this um, water and cakes gave Elijah the strength to travel 40 days and nights to Horeb yes to Mount Sinai where uh, Elijah enters a cave and it's there that the Lord comes to him and this is where it's just so powerful to me first um, there is wind and then there is an earthquake and then there is fire the very same uh, element used to prove the gods of uh, Baal were not gods um, but it's not in those events Elijah hears God's voice in a still whisper and that also in the desert in the desert or the wilderness of our lives when we're told to be silent um, that is so we can hear God even in a, as a whisper um, and what what he tells Elijah to do is to go back north to Damascus and prepare the way for the next generation of political and religious leaders who will in fact bring about the final victory over Baal worship. So Elijah's work is about to be finished. He is to go and prepare the next group of folk and then he is essentially purpose-filled. And this is a wonderful way to go all the way forward to John the Baptist, who Jesus referred to as Elijah. Um, John going into the wilderness, people following him, baptizing people in the river um, to repent of their sins, because what is he doing? He's preparing the way for Jesus Christ. He is the second Elijah. And that is where I offer our talk for today. And I would love to hear from y'all your thoughts, observations, questions. I got one. It's interesting that in uh, the book of John, he talks about temptations and he kind of sums them up the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And those are the three things that the devil offers up to Jesus. Right. And it just kind of carries through and it pretty much sums up temptations as a whole. Right. At least in my, in my life. Yeah, exactly. I think it's the, the coherence of 
the Bible from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It's remarkable, isn't it? Yes. And, and the way um, God uses place and the way that place can be literal, physical, or it can be existential. It can be um, an experience that is our own, personal to us, and we alone are in it, which is often who's in the wilderness. It's someone alone. Um, and I love like the notion of Jacob wrestling with God. I, I, that happens in the wilderness. And the still small voice happens in the wilderness. And because we are being silent, we hear it. Any other thoughts? Yeah, this is a, a really small point, but the connection between Elijah and John the Baptist. I've never thought about Jezebel wanting Elijah's head and then Herodias asked for John the Baptist head and just that just one more kind of connection yeah exactly nothing is coincidental right no nothing nothing Carolyn that was just beautiful well thank you I, I, I really was thinking about the point you made about so much suffering being really for the next generation the testing of one generation for the next generation. I've never thought of that before. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I hope too that um, Fran and I, we very much want um, to offer that the wilderness is not in and of itself a place of punishment. It's a place of opportunity. It's where God's big work can occur and that we don't leave the wilderness as the same person we were when we entered it. And that's just demonstrated over and over and over again. It's going to be true of Jesus when he leaves the wilderness after his time with Satan. Um, so it, it's, it's a wonderful and rich uh, component to take in. And I sure do appreciate y'all being here today. Next week, if Fran Cade is not here, we are going to um, protest, but she promises that she will be, and I look forward to that. And um, let me pray, and we will get on with our day. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your gift of the wilderness, hard and desolate and lonely as it may be. We thank you, Lord, that you use it for our good. You use it to give us a name and give us an identity, to give us um, the reminder that in Christ we are people of authority, and that, Lord, you give us our purpose. You show us what it is that you would have us to do and to be. And so we thank you, Lord, for this time in your word, in your wilderness. And we ask that you would bless and keep each of us and those whom we love in the week ahead. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, 
we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.